Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We now continue with Part 4 of our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp on Hans Urs von Balthasar's Love alone is credible. But the whole concept, such a poor word to choose, but the whole concept of suffering for us is limited by the extent to which we feel we can manage. How I, the suffering is right. so, there's a limit to what we can suffer. But then again, you ask anyone who has endured suffering to a certain nature, and you know, it, it's amazing what you can live through. That the really? degrees, it, I, I'm thinking just recently we've gone through an, a time of pandemic where people were in isolation, the elders in, in nursing homes where they weren't able to see. And did they ever perceive that they would have to suffer the aloneness or the parent that has to endure the suffering of a child entering into it? I you was never just about thought. To say that. Yeah. Yeah. You could well, make me, it. As a parent, and, and, you know, I would say that perhaps. The greatest and most exquisite suffering that a human being could endure is for a parent to watch his child being tortured. You know, uh, I think of, for example, Jewish mother and fathers who had watched their children being tortured in places like Auschwitz and and Bergen-Belsen and and places like that. the, the, The agony that one must feel is so unbelievably exquisitely awful that I, I, I can't even be, I, I, I think, for example, too, and I, not to beat this point, but just last week there was a story in some, some park somewhere, National Park, State Park, where a toddler fell into an open septic tank and drowned. And, uh, and the, you know, the parent, parents, of course, were dead. And I'm thinking, my goodness, now those parents have to live for the rest of their life with an image of their three-year-old daughter dying horribly in a cesspool of filth. And, and I just, it made me cry as I was reading the story. It kind of chokes me up now to think about what it, oh, I can't even begin to think as a parent what to go through something like that. So yeah, our capacity for suffering is so immense. And what is really interesting, therefore, is that suffering of that magnitude drives us back onto the very basics of existence and forces out of us one of only two responses. To hell with God, I hate God, God does not exist, or actually then into an absolutely more profound trust in God, a more profound awareness of God. You see both, for example, examples within Judaism of Jews who came out of concentration camps, and they had exactly those two responses into atheism, where was God in our suffering, or into an absolutely even more profound understanding of the meaning of suffering. And so Balthazar is asking us in Love Alone 
to, in a sense, bring all of that existential awareness of suffering to bear in our understanding of how suffering can be vicarious and therefore salvific and therefore somewhat meaningful. See, one of the one of the things about suffering is that it creates within us a sense of anomia, anomia meaning a sense of lawlessness, that the sheer randomness of suffering is part of its evil, and the sheer intensity of it can create in us a sense of complete and utter despair and meaninglessness. And so one of Balthazar's point is what the cross shows. I mean, Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that could be interpreted in many ways. Balthazar certainly takes it in the direction of Christ screaming out in a sense of an, an, an abandonment from God and, uh, and not just quoting Psalm 22, which ends happily or whatever. No, it is a true cry of dereliction. And Balthazar is inviting us to see therein the deep mystery that is being revealed in, in this man's life that then resonates deeply within us with regard to our own vicarious forms of suffering. Isn't this then the reflection of what uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, Edith Stein, would talk about in that compassionating with yes. another, the actual, not not just the feeling of compassion, I don't mean to minimize it that way, but it's actually co-passionating, entering into the passion of another. We're called to do that because that's exactly what Christ did on the cross with us. Exactly. There's an element of solidarity here uh, among human beings that the cross and, and Christ's incarnation in general points towards that is a profound mystery that runs absolutely counter to the atomized individualism and hypernaturalism of our age that views our soul as, if we even have a soul, our mind, our psychology, as utterly localized in this three pounds, five pounds, whatever it is, of, of gray goo inside my skull. This highly localized, confined notion. But what Christ's cross reveals to us, and the whole notion of vicarious suffering reveals to us, and what like you said, E.S. Stein, co-passioning, is that we co-penetrate one another. We interpenetrate one another. That the whole notion of the body of Christ isn't merely a metaphor. It's actually a true ontological reality. And, and the Eucharist and the sacraments help to incorporate that us into that. That we are part of a communal person. All right? That, it, that doesn't negate our individual personhoods, but links them together in profound communal ways that we are just on, on the surface scratching what, what all of that means. And so, yeah, it goes well beyond empathy. I'm not just supposed to feel empathy with another human being and therefore show them a little compassion and show them some corporal works of mercy or whatever. I'm supposed to co-passion with them somehow, some way to enter into a solidarity with their suffering, even if it means trying to take some of their suffering into myself and to suffer it for them instead of them, and so on. How many parents have said, as they've watched their child suffer, or, or prayed, you know, Father, give my child sufferings to me. And uh, what Christ is asking us to do is to extend that same kind of parental co-passioning to every single other human being that has ever lived, just as he did and was capable of. So this goes back to what you were talking about a little while ago, 
in that sense of this revelation of God. And Balthazar brings this up in that it's so big and that the revelation is so big, we, get to, we can only get glimpses of it, but we get yeah. to understand this love. He even talks about how a parent, and he will even use animals, how an animal will give up the life to protect the the egg or the the little one yeah. the foundling oh, yeah. because there's something innate about the type of and some would say well that's instinct it's just trying to you know, but there's something why is instinct that way yeah I mean like I said we just have some uh, our first lamb born on the farm it's lambing season uh, and uh, I went out to inspect the little feller and uh, mama got in my way you know not aggressively not mean but she let me know she didn't want me coming anywhere near her baby and gave me some guttural responses and pawed a bit in the ground and so i backed off i thought well, okay mama's doing her job i'm just let her do her job but this is it's instinctual but there's a reason for the instinct well you know uh, not to veer too far off topic but it's one of the areas of my own theological expertise science and religion uh, for many many uh, decades if not a century or more Darwinism, evolutionary theory, was conceived of as, you know, red in tooth and claw, as an essentially dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, competitive sort of thing. But the newest thinking in neo-Darwinian thought is that cooperative symbiosis is far more common in nature than competition. That, uh, That the engine of evolution seems to be attractive affiliation rather than repelling competition. And, th- and so the, the question naturally arises, so why is the natural order so constructed? Right? And so in, in, in an interesting sort of thing, my point would be that what is coming to be seen is that in evolutionary theory, it's almost as if the competition element is seen as almost a kind of corruption of the deeper, more communal element as organisms cooperate with one another in, in the struggle for survival. Darwin's problem, he was all too Malthusian in his, in his understanding of scarcity of resources and competition for those resources. Uh, and so to come back to the main point, yes, the, the, this notion of connectedness, of mutuality, of cooperative engagement with one another, you can see a hierarchy in the animal world uh, where beings come together symbiotically or not even just symbiotically, cooperatively, and in order to raise themselves up. And then you reach the human being made in the image and likeness of God, who now has a capacity for a spiritual mutuality and communalness that goes way beyond what nature herself gives us. Again, to the point you were making about art and Mozart, what Balthazar would talk about, there's something just like that instinctual, that, that pulling, that revelatory, that the beautiful Anything that's beautiful, you look at creation, there's something inside that, to the acknowledgement that is experienced by the human person. Well, yes. Balthazar, one of his most famous analogies, for example, is that we only come to our sense of self uh, through engagement with some other. So he goes back to the, the image of the child, the baby. A baby has no sense of self. When a baby's waving its arms in the air, it doesn't look at its hands and say, oh, those are my hands. It's just the the hands are just now a part of this environment that it's experiencing. And what does it experience first and foremost? The mother's smile. 
I suppose you could accuse both of them. Oh, he's sexist. He's always talking about the mother's smile. Well, you know, usually is the mother. All right. The, the mother is probably the very first human being that smiles at, at the new the newborn child and continues to do so. But over time, his point is that that smile, the visage of the other is the child's entire universe and is what provokes out of that child the first awareness that it is being invited in. That existence is not alien or hostile. Existence is something into which I am being invited by something loving. And it is out of that experience of a loving invitation that the child eventually experiences, and I am me. I too am a self. Point is that the aesthetic then naturally leads into the dramatic, the dramatiques, where then the love that we perceive is now a love that engages. And what we are perceiving is a love, we've just scratched the surface here, that invites us into a communal co-passioning that isn't automatic, that requires this dramatic interchange of human and divine wills in an asymmetric relationship, obviously. Uh, But still, we are not simply absorbed into the divine will and dissolved, nor is, and I like a phrase from Robert Barron, Bishop Barron, nor is God's transcendence competitive to ours. So we are neither dissolved into God, nor are we, in a sense, alien and foreign. It's something else. And Balthazar develops this beautifully, especially then in the Theodramatique, where he develops it as this interplay of of freedoms, which is why he loved Maximus the Confessor, because Maximus was brilliant on on this question. And, uh, And my friend Adrian Walker. For Balthazar, this communal engagement, this this revelatory drama is played out in this unbelievable symphony that is the sacraments and our relationship within the church. There's no play, and when I say play to the extent that this isn't just, you know, we go up with a, a perfunctory action, there is a great cosmological drama that breaks open every time the sacraments are offered to those who would say yes. And and it starts in baptism, correct? It certainly does. I think Balthazar would use almost the language of a sort of rupturing of the veil. I mean, every single time, for example, the Eucharist is celebrated, uh, something profoundly eschatological has broken through into our time and place. If, you know, this is what the real presence of Christ really means. I mean, we can debate until the cows come home. What does transubstantiation really mean? Is it too wedded to an Aristotelian metaphysic of substance and actions? Blah, blah, blah. I don't care. What it means is that the full reality of the risen Christ has become present to us in an eschatological breaking in of the next world into this one seamlessly and yet in a way that also disorients and disrupts and discombobulates. It's amazing, uh, which is why a very banal performance of the liturgy is really quite a tragedy. It speaks strongly to Balthazar's, I mean, especially his love for the Catholic Church, that even for the mystic, he would talk about there's only an authentic mysticism is a one that's focused on Christ. All of that, the mystery of the Eucharist, the depth of our prayer, 
will not make sense unless there's an appreciation of what happened at the crucifixion. That moment of the death of Christ and his resurrection, that whole passion movement, it will always be a perfunctory, a shallow action if we don't get it. Absolutely. Lurking in the background here. Uh, (laughs) This has just opened up so many things. Lurking in the background here is the question of what counts as public reason, uh, something with public warrant. The faith, since political liberalism has reigned ascendant in the West, has been reduced to the mere private sphere. God has been relegated to the merely private sphere, which is like saying that God really isn't truly real, uh, that it's just a piety. It's some sort of lace doily piety fit for the Victorian parlor but it's not really publicly real. It has no purchase on public discourse or on public order. It is an internal, it's almost like a kind of pietistical quietism is forced on all of us by the categories of political liberalism. Like I say, there's a de facto atheism at the heart of the modern political liberal project that that goes well beyond nihilism. Nihilism would at least say nothing matters uh, at all but I don't think anybody is ever really a nihilist. I, I, don't, want, I, want, I don't want to go there. Uh, but the point is, is that what Balthazar, therefore, to bring it back to him, what he's saying here is this, and it goes back to his project in Love Alone and his debate with people like Gotthold Lessing and, and the whole Germanic apocalyptic tradition and so on. What, what he wants to say in bringing home this analogy with art and the splendor and the glory, that there is a public element to revelation. There is no more public act than the cross of Christ. There is no public act, therefore, than the Eucharist. These things count as forms of public reason, and their relegation to the sphere of the mere pietistical and private is a gross, gross violation of the mission, the mission of the church. And to the extent that the church has acquiesced in this settlement, Balthazar condemns it. I mean, in that book, The Moment of Christian Witness, Cordula Oda de Ansfall, this is essentially his point. We've all become Laodicea. We have all become this church of compromisers. What will become of us on the day when we're demanded a decision, a decision rooted in a moment of crisis? And the, therefore, it ha- our holiness, our quest for holiness, all mysticism has to be rooted in the public revelation of the church in her public reason, and thus our participation in it as disciples of this Christ must take the form of an evangelizing public witness to the broader society. It cannot be a retreat into mere interiority in a Gnostic flight of fancy. It has to look like love. It has to look like love. And my point is, love is the most public thing of all. Love is the most rational thing of all. If God exists and God is real, he is the most real thing that is, then prayer is the most rational act a human being can engage in, and love is the most moral act a human being can engage in. In other words, prayer and love are not mere subjectivities. They are the truest, most rational, most reasonable things that are. Uh, and, and, and therefore, there's a realness, a denseness, kavod, again, splendor, glory. There's a denseness to all of this that resists all reduction to transcendental categories or mere subjective pieties. I think that is why, in, in the book, Love Alone is Credible, where Balthazar 
again approaches something he says over and over and over again in his work, the immensity of the fiat, of the yes, yes. It, the vow. I mean, the very first of all of us to do that is, of course, Mary. Well, yeah, I mean, this is why, I mean, Balthazar, not in Love Alone, but in other places, talks about the two dimensions of the church, the Marian and the Petrine. I mean, the Petrine function, you know, it's absolutely critical. The Petrine, it's the skeleton of the church. It's the, the liniments and, and the bones of the church that hold the, the whole thing together, uh, without which our, all of our internal organs would be just a pile of goo on the floor and spread out in weird ways, non-functional. So you have to have that, but the Petrine element is inferior to the interior living principle, the, 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 which is the Marian principle, which is rooted in her fiat. Uh, I wrote an article in 1996 in Communio. It was called The Marian Subjectivity of the Church. It was basically a chapter for my dissertation. And the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is that Balthazar wants to say, yeah, I mean, Marian fiat isn't just important. It's the central aspect of our subjectivity. Oh, my dog is barking. You probably hear him in the background. He's agreeing. He's barking in agreement. That's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, he's agreeing. So that Marian subjectivity, that, yes, is the absolute pivotal moment in salvation history. And all of us, in our response to God's overture of grace, have to be Marian in that fiat. Be it done unto me according to that word. word. And, and, And the fact is, this is an active passivity. There is a passivity here, an openness and obedience, but it's active. And once again, love is the key. Just as a lover opens up a space for the beloved to speak without in first imposing strictures, you are in effect actively taking in what the lover is saying because you have antecedently and actively decided to do so, to commit, to bind yourself to this vow of love. Uh, and so it's, it's a passivity that is already antecedently quite active. Uh, and so this image of the Virgin Mary sometimes is just sort of this sort of little docile and sort of quaint little thing, figurine, porcelain figurine sort of thing is, is quite wrong. She, she more than likely was quite something. <laughs> I bet. And the vows that we make, I mean, I I said it before, the vow that we made at baptism, that yes to that exchange, that receptivity to animate in love to the best we can. Only he can do it, but we can't put limits on ourselves saying, I can do this. No, you can't do anything. What you got to do is, like Mary, let it go and let him do it through you, in you, with you, you know, he is the one that's going to move and animate your being. There's, yeah, there's a deep paradox here. And once again, it goes back to Balthazar talking about, in a sense, Christ uh, through vicarious suffering, liberating, you know, not just getting our sins and our guilt removed, but in a sense, liberating us from the bondages that sin has imposed, liberating us from Satan, liberating us from those strictures and those bondages that sin has created. But notice something here. The nature of those bondages is that they deny the paradox of freedom. The bondage is created by the delusions that Satan puts into us, that freedom is this adolescent thing of freedom from constraint. It's very All of modernity is rooted in a relatively adolescent view of freedom as freedom from constraint. What Balthazar wants to say, as any great saint would say, uh, you know, is that freedom 
is only freedom insofar as it is bounded by a whole series of prior constraints. And anybody who, who has ever done anything worthwhile in life from an artistic to an athletic you know, endeavor realizes that the freedom that comes with a skill is bought and paid for through the binding that took place in the acquisition of that skill. And that none of us is ever happy with simply a dissipated, amorphous freedom that just flows wherever it wills. Therefore, maximal freedom depends upon maximal constraint. And that is the paradox of binding yourself to God in Mary's fiat. What Mary does, since she was sinless, was bind herself maximally to God and thus gain maximal freedom. We are incapable of, I know I am not capable of giving myself maximally to constraints that God wants to place upon me for my own good. And therefore, I will never be maximally free until, God willing, I reach the next life. This vow of love, I think, is in our understanding of it, or at least having grasping something of the nature of what it is. Balthazar sees is that revelation of the, how deep it goes with Christ on the cross. You can't give what you don't have. That's and right. we're looking at a time now where Pew studies are showing us in 2021 that the trajectory of those who feel affiliated with any type of church or religion is going down at an unbelievable rate. Is the trajectory is just sliding, and it doesn't just the Catholic Church; it's it's Christianity, oh. Protestant, exactly, and it's not so much the boomers, even though that's still a problem. It's the young, who are the millennials, the children of the boomers. It has not been communioned to them; that hasn't been communicated, not necessarily by God, but by those who were had said yes in a vow. I would argue they haven't experienced it within those who formed them. There's a, a deformation that yeah. has happened. Yeah, yeah okay. stunning at these numbers. And you know, the causes are probably multifocal and cultural, but I think the nub of it all is, is that there's a boredom there. That when, when they are presented the faith, it is not presented to them in the manner that Balthasar would present it to them as something that is shocking, interesting, alive, vital, important, uh, cutting edge. It's, it's presented as this most unbelievable pablum of banality. Uh, as I say in so many of my blog posts, this sort of, it's just part of our settlement with bourgeois modernity, with the cultural well-being, with a certain Epicureanism. We're all, in a sense, sybarites these days, so this love of the sensual uh, and, and so our parishes have become, as, and to use the word once again of Robert Barron, these beige, these, these bastions of beige Catholicism that, that inspires no one. I mean, it's not just young people that are leaving the faith in droves. Increasingly, it'll be interesting to see how many people come back to church after COVID uh, goes away. I know a lot of bishops are worried that, okay, they're, they're just not going to come back. They've, they've tasted life on the other side, and they like it. And uh, so there you go. I think there is this, this, in a sense, boredom at the fact that church is not offering them anything unique, anything supernatural, anything eschatological. Notice these same people that leave the church aren't necessarily drifting into atheism or agnosticism. 
a lot of them drift into, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious kinds of occult practices or new agey kind of, kind of things, you know, human nature will always quest after the transcendent. It will always quest after the supernatural. And that's precisely what the church of today in the West is not giving to people. You know, you and I are essentially in the same peer group. And we came of age at a time when uh, John Paul, I would say John Paul the Great, we were the JP2 kids. We were the ones who heard a message that said, be not afraid. And his message was one that challenged atheism, that challenged societies, that challenged, even in Poland, it just ignited your heart. He challenged us to love. And that's what was so different. No accident that he was influenced by Balthazar, right? You know, that, that he understood that when, you know, a child asks you for bread, you don't give them a stone. That's what Jesus meant by that. You give them the bread of life. You give them God. Uh, and I'm a little older than you are, I think. So I'm, I am not just a JP tour. I'm a, I'm a guy who, you know, came I was 10 years old in 1968 when all the doo-doo hit the fan. And so I remember the church of chaos. I remember the church of, of, of complete nonsense, the silly season, as maybe George Weigel called it. Uh, I remember that acutely, and it, it affected me deeply for better or for worse. So my experience of John Paul was as a great liberator. Mm-hmm. He liberated us by, by raising us through his challenge. I was so ready for that as a young person. I was so ready to be given a robust, vital form of the Catholic faith that wasn't constantly apologizing for itself. So, Yeah. Yeah, and it's. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, that the church today, leadership, I'm not exactly, well, I don't even really know I, the dynamic of it. But talk about trickle downs. What has happened in this understanding of love and of the message, essentially, it's the actual lived out message of Christ Jesus and what it looks like and how it touches souls and how it changes not only yeah. the person but the world. What has happened in this period where it is not being, again, communioned, communicated? But you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, this is a mantra that we could repeat over and over again. But to return to Balthazar, this is what most upsets me by the neo-traditionalists that go after him so, so much. The neo-traditionalists need to get out of their way. They're so fixated on his dare we hope sort of thesis, that they neglect the fact that he is their best ally. Because what he is arguing in the entirety of his trilogy is of the absolute importance of God's revelation in Christ. That there is no other Christ than the Christ of the church that carries that revelation forward. And that that church must be a church of radical challenge to holiness, to come up higher, that it cannot be a church of compromises and lukewarmness and, and running off to various humanitarianisms and, 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 and so on. So in so many ways, the liberal Jesuits at Fordham, who so opposed my uh, doctoral dissertation on Font Balthazar in the early 90s, on the grounds that Balthazar was too strong a champion of Catholic particularity, they were right, and the neotrads are wrong. 
Okay, the Jesuits were right in their radical Ronarianism to see that Balthazar was not their friend <laughs> and that his project was a project of holiness and a call to imitate that Marian fiat within the full range of the, the dense Catholic reality. Yeah, the, the Balthazar understanding of, of Christ and that gift of love, that revelation of love, is the the very essence of what it is to evangelize that is to to bring them that is the good news and when you do that it's you're bringing them to him and when they enter into him he brings you into the fullness he'll bring you into the sacramental life a grace-filled encounter he it all roads it will continue to turn and move into the life literally of the mystical body of the church. And that's where you want to go, isn't it? Isn't that the, that's, isn't that the message? It's the method of of love. It's the way of love. Uh, But apparently, according to some, the best method for evangelizing is to first try to convince people that unless they accept a certain set of propositions, they're going to hell. We need to first believe that most people are going to hell and then we will be able to evangelize properly because people will then be properly scared. So fear is the motivational factor here. So it's a very lowbrow view of human nature, isn't it? Yeah. That human beings will only be moved towards the good, towards love, out of fear. And that there's nothing inherent within God's revelation in Christ in and of itself that would attract them outside of fear. And this is exactly wrong. The idea that Balthasar wants to propose is that love as a splendor, as a glory, attracts. And it attracts deeply and profoundly if you yourself love him. And therefore, you're going to hate your sins and you're going to turn away from them in the same way that I'll speak for myself as a husband will try to turn away from my faults and failings towards my wife because I know it will make me happier and it will make her happier. Not because I'm afraid, well, if I don't, she's going to divorce me, so I better change because I need that second bank account. You know, that would be a motivation of fear. No, my motivation to improve myself is love because then exponentially I grow and exponentially she grows. And synergetically, we both grow even bigger as we turn outward to the world and evangelize the world out of that capacity of love. This is Christ. This is being a Christian. You are, it is its own justification. I don't listen to Mozart because I think I might get punished if I don't. I listen to Mozart because it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, and, and that's the point. Maybe it's just me, but I never understood the trying to evangelize through fear because, it again, oh, the John Paul that spoke to me as a teenager said, be not afraid. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, Christ in the Gospels that he led me to more than love your neighbor was be not afraid, because if you're afraid, you can't love. And even the, the message of the angels, right. they always said, be not afraid. Not afraid. However, when they you're did not. that, there is, a, there is a little bit of a caveat. When they said that, they were always asking you to do a big thing. There was always a big oh, yeah. thing coming. That's a good and, point. But that's a good thing in the sense that that's what we're called to. You're being called to a big thing, to love as Christ yeah. loved. That's a big thing, but don't be afraid to do it. It's a big thing, but and don't be is, afraid. 
key. I think one of the reasons why people, the young people are falling away from the church, youth is a time for pursuing big things. You seek big things as a young person. I found my vocation, uh, well, what I thought was my vocation as a priest, but I, I went to the seminary as a young man because I went to the Newman Center at the University of Nebraska and was deeply challenged by the priests there, deeply, deeply challenged, and then, of course, by John Paul and so forth. And I then pursued priesthood, not because I thought if I didn't, I was going to go to hell. I mean, I could have easily run off and become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or whatever and made buckets of money and still gone to church and heaven and all that sort of stuff. But I wasn't motivated by fear. And we are really missing the boat as a church by not laying this down. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. This concludes part four of our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp discussing Hans Urs von Balthasar's Love Alone is Credible. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit bonbalthazar.com. There, too, you can also access numerous audio excerpts from this particular book, along with others from the Balthazar Library. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will consider subscribing to this particular podcast and liking it on whatever platform you may be hearing it on. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about bonbalthazar.com and join us for the next episode of Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth.